unity in the midst of diversity. This is exactly what God has in mind for his children. Rather than stamping out his kids with a cookie cutter, he has fashioned each of us with unique gifts and abilities. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he discusses 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which holds the secret of how we can remain unified in our churches in spite of our differences. The Apostle Paul is seeking to correct a problem in the Corinthian church. They were trying to make everybody the same. They were trying to get everyone to think the same, to act the same, to dress the same, to talk the same. One of the problems of human nature is that we have an idea that you build the unity of a group by being the same. So, for example, if you're in the military and they want to build a concept of unity, They'll dress you all in the same uniform. They'll have you all cut your hair off a certain way. And they'll put you in a program where everybody eats the same, sleeps at the same time, gets up at the same time. They build unity by sameness. And there's a place for that. In the military, that's one place where you can build discipline by having everyone be the same. In the church of Jesus Christ, that same mentality easily becomes a priority. For example, in a Bible church, the big stress is on Bible study, intellectual, cognitive Bible study. So what happens? It tends to bring a whole group of believers together that like to think about their faith, and they like to very carefully understand the Scriptures. But when it comes maybe to really praising the Lord and being exuberant like that, then this cognitive group of believers is like this. They're a little bit afraid to really express their emotions. And so there's another church that comes along, and they're all emotional. In other words, man, they wave their hands, and they get excited, and they have the drums going Sunday morning, and it's all emotional. So then the cognitive group, the head group, says, we know the Bible better than the emotional group. And the emotional group says, well, we might not know the Bible as well as you do, but boy, do we praise the Lord more effectively than you do. And on and on and on it goes. You've got the quiet, serious, traditional group that likes the beautiful organs playing, the pipe organs. And they like their pastor to wear a robe and a collar. And most of you are just the opposite. You go, Horace, David, if you ever came with a collar and a robe, man, I, I would want to go somewhere else. And so we have all these different flavors and what usually happens in the body of Christ is we get this group that's like this, another group that's like this, another group that's like this, and then they start throwing bombs at one another, blowing one another apart by schisma and division. The Apostle Paul was trying to get on the Corinthians about the need to get their eyes off certain gifts in the body of Christ and get their eye on the giver. And what he told us was that, first of all, we need to understand a criterion by which we can know whether we're hearing the truth spiritually. Because just because a teacher seems very intellectual, they might not be telling us the truth. Just because someone seems very enthusiastic and miraculous, I mean, able to do great and mighty things, that doesn't assure us that we're finding the truth. And so we began by looking at 1 Corinthians 12 as the criterion for determining what is the truth. And we look just at the first half of that. Anyone that says that Jesus is cursed 
cannot be speaking by the Holy Spirit. And what we showed was in the context of the New Testament that it's not just an ejaculative cuss word that comes out and says, ha, ah, that person's not of God. Someone that's cursing Jesus is the individual that's not admitting, not confessing that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Because if Jesus is not the only way through his death on the cross of Calvary, then what it means is that Jesus who did die on the cross is cursed because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And we talked together about the paradox of Jesus by becoming a curse for us became the blessing to us. And so someone that denies the uniqueness of the gospel, the fact that it's by believing in that cross and it's not by works, that individual, in essence, is cursing the Lord. Now also, I think, just to put it in a historical setting, in the Corinthian church, you would have some Jewish people that would fellowship with the Corinthian church from time to time. And in the first century, as a Jewish person heard what we're going to look at now. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. When a Jewish person heard that, he might stand up or she might stand up in the gathering of believers and curse and walk out. I've been in a meeting in Israel where an Israeli soldier did that. And what Paul is telling us is that no one can say Jesus is Yahweh, he's divine, he's the only Savior, except it comes as a gift to them, moving their hearts to believe, and no one can say he is cursed except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice it says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now this phrase, Jesus is Lord, has become like a slogan, like you can drive into Dallas, you see a big sign, Jesus is Lord. In other words, it's almost like a sales promotion statement for us in our culture. And we'll shout, Jesus is Lord, and that kind of a thing. In our context, it's awfully easy to miss what it originally meant to say Jesus is Lord. You see, for a Jew to say Jesus is Lord was to say that all the promises of the Old Testament that God would send a deliverer, that he himself would come and visit this planet. For example, like in Malachi, Yahweh himself says, I will come to you. And for a Jew to say, Jesus is Lord, was to say that the Yahweh of the Old Testament had become personalized in Jesus of Nazareth, and it was an incredibly powerful confession of faith. Now, something I think that there's a big debate that we need to talk about a little bit today is about whether or not you need to confess Jesus is Lord in order to be born again. Often the focus of that debate and the confession of Jesus is Lord is do you as a person sit there in the audience and say, does Jesus have total control over my life? Is he the absolute possessor of my life? Which leads to saying, do I really reflect all the qualities of godliness? And what many believers, when you talk about the lordship of Christ, they begin to think in terms of his control over my life, how much I've submitted to it. In other words, they start to think about submission, personal submission to the Lord. The Bible does talk about presenting your body as a living sacrifice. But I think we need to be very careful not to make our eternal salvation based subjectively 
on how much we allow the Lord to control our lives. Because that's not how you get saved. In fact, that can very easily turn around and become being saved by works, being kept by works. It can also cause you as a believer to doubt very seriously whether or not you're in God's family because you realize that you're not totally Christ-like yet. You're not perfect yet. So let's turn to Romans chapter 10 and look at the way the Apostle Paul talked about this idea, Jesus is Lord. I want you to see the way he joins it with the confession of I believe that Jesus is my Savior. Romans 10, Romans 10, and we'll begin with verse 5, the key passage where the Apostle Paul explains himself what he meant by the confession, Jesus is Lord. Moses described this way of righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. What he's saying is that there's a salvation that a person thinks they can have by doing the works of the law. In fact, the heartbeat of the whole book of Romans is that there's a righteousness that people think they can have by obeying moral rules and regulations. And part of the law of Moses presented this morality, this legal code, these beautiful, moral, skillful principles for living. And Moses said, if you want to try to earn salvation by obeying the Mosaic law, which is the best religious law that's ever been given, then it's by work. And you've got to do it perfectly. You've got to do it consistently. You can never miss. So that's one way of righteousness. I will work to attain righteousness. I will seek to obey. And Moses spoke about that. But Paul goes on to argue, but Moses also talked about another kind of righteousness, another way to be right with God, to be conformed to his standards. And it talks about this righteousness in verse 6. And he calls this not a works righteousness, but a righteousness which comes by faith. Verse 6. But the righteousness, that is the conformity to God's standards. So you'll understand what each word means. The righteousness or the conformity to God's standards that is by faith, how does it talk? It says this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Who will by their own self-effort climb up the ladder of self-righteousness and get into heaven? Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ from the dead. It's reminding us that Christ ascended to heaven... He's also been into the depths of hell and he's the only one that can take us to heaven instead of the depths of hell. So if you think you can do it, if you think you can ascend to heaven through your own strength, you're denying the need for a savior. And therefore, if you think you can rescue yourself from the depths of hell, you're denying your need for the only savior that ever descended into the depths of hell. Then he goes on and says this. But what does it say? The word is near you. The word of the gospel, the good news, is near you. In fact, it's so near you that it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're proclaiming. And then he tells us what that word of faith is. That is, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For it is with your heart, with your internal being, with your personality, that you believe, that you depend upon Christ completely, that you put all your confidence for eternal life in what he has done for you, and that faith causes, makes you righteous, causes you, because of the gift of righteousness, to become righteous before God. And it is with your mouth that you confess and you are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. And then it quotes Joel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? Now get this, because your eternal destiny depends upon As we sit together today, when I talk to some of you, and I say, there is an eternal person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, his name is Jesus. He lived in eternity past with God the Father. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the revelation of the scripture predicted that this son would come into the world. That son came into the world. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, and he was crucified, dead, and buried. Some of you believe that that cross is the place where your sins were totally taken care of, where they were washed away, to use that imagery, where you were declared righteous because Jesus took the rap for you. And in your heart, when I talk to you like that, there's a settled conviction, it is well. When I think of facing God, I don't have to do it with fear. Not that I'm not afraid to die. It's natural to be afraid of death. But when I think of facing God, I don't sit there and say, well, I hope everything's okay. I hope I made the exam all right. I think I was good enough. I was a good father. I was a good mother. I went to church quite regularly. I'm a pretty good person. I think maybe I'll make it. That's not at all what we're talking about. There's a group of you that confess Jesus is the Lord. And what you're saying is that he is God who became flesh and dwelt among us and he's full of grace, which means that he's full of unmerited favor to those that deserve just the opposite. And he's full of truth, which means that he is genuine, he's authentic. Now, all the hypocritical preachers in the world can't change his character. And all the inconsistent Christians in the world can't change his character. And some of you, in fact, I trust that all of you, are confessing, yes, Jesus is Lord. I am calling upon the name of the Lord as it's said in the book of Joel, and that Yahweh of the Old Testament is fully Jesus in the New Testament, give you a very specific illustration of people that reject that, contrary to what the Jehovah's Witness tell me, that Jesus is not Jehovah, he's not Yahweh, I believe that he is. And all my salvation rests on that. Now I'm stressing this and I'm taking the time because it's strategic. Because it's so strategic that you won't get into heaven unless you confess that. I also want you to see some believers make a big dichotomy between what you say with your mouth and what you believe in your heart. 
I want you to see Paul's good, unified thinking. The scripture says what you genuinely believe in your heart comes out with your mouth. And we have turned the confession into walking an aisle or raising your hand. That can be the confession. But some of you might receive Christ all by yourselves. But if you genuinely trust in Christ, it won't remain a private matter. Because what you really believe in your heart, you share with other people. You confess it with other people. And that's very important. What Romans is saying is that your heart and your mouth go together. And what you really believe in your heart about Jesus will come out in what you verbally say about Jesus. And there's no dichotomy there. It's not one group that are secret believers. Oh yeah, I believe in your heart and I'm saved. And then there's another group of super strong disciples that say, I talk it and I witness it. Paul's not thinking like that. Paul's got it all together. Every one of you I trust have come to the place in your heart where it's not just a slogan, but you're willing to go to the stake because it's the conviction of your soul. It's the meaning of your eternal destiny. Jesus is God and he's my Savior. And I've called upon him and he has saved me. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now the moment that you do that, the moment that you do that, God's third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes to live in your life. You see, you don't work to get the Spirit. You don't have to pray so many hours to get the Spirit. If that's so, then we're just caught up again in work, 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 work. And try, 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 try. And then if I had the Spirit and you didn't have the Spirit, then I can go like this. Why don't you get them? I got them. I prayed long enough to get them. And I learned how to get them. And I'm really being used by Him because I'm faithful and I'm good and you're not. And a lot of you have been raised on preaching like that. By grace. It's all by the free gift of the Spirit. And all I want you to enter into that rest, you don't know how much fun it is to teach you when it doesn't depend upon me. And you don't know how much agony it is to teach you when I think it does depend upon me. You see, we need to use our human abilities, but it's all a gift from the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying that those who confess Him as Lord, they've all been baptized by the Spirit, They've all been made to drink of the same spirit. There's no elites in God's family. There's just a beautiful body where every part is needed. Now, in order to keep that kind of a balance, we need to focus on the Trinity. We need to focus on the triune God. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 12. Turn back from Romans 10 to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's cover the next basic point that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12. He says in verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but the same God who works all of them in all men. Now, why are we together today? Why should the Corinthians have been together? Why do you need me, and why do I need you? Because our focus is on the triune God. Now Paul, almost every word is significant in this context because the Corinthians had forgotten some important things. 
they started getting their eyes on the unique individual that could do miraculous things. There's no question in the Corinthian church that they had people that could do unbelievable things. They could heal people. They could speak in languages they never studied before under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They could give prophetic messages that were equivalent to the Holy Word of God. I mean, when you went to the Corinthian church, I mean, it was a real blowout. You couldn't believe what happened there. You know what they started to do? The prophets said, man, I'm really important. I'm a prophet in this group. Not everybody was a prophet. So the ones that weren't a prophet said, well, maybe I shouldn't be in this group. Maybe I shouldn't come because I don't have that ability. And it goes back to what I started out with, this idea of we all need to be the same. The Holy Spirit will always work the same way. And He always works the same way in all people. And He always works the same for all time. And there's never any diversity. That's always falsehood. The true Holy Spirit, first of all, gives gifts. I want you to see that. It says here there are different kinds of gifts. And the word gift, I want to tell you what it is in Greek. I don't ordinarily do that because I don't want you to feel that you can't understand the Bible by not reading Greek. But the Greek word that's used here is so much used in our own culture that we need to be reminded. It's charismata. The charismata. You've heard of the charismatic movement is the way we anglicize it. So Paul is saying that there are different kinds of charismata. Now what does charismata mean? A whole lot of us have the idea. It's like, I'll have somebody come into my office. I had this happen several times. And they'll say, Dave, you know, when you preach, something really happens. The Spirit of God is, is really upon you, almost. I really did. This is just sharing. These individuals share with me. David, you're almost there. You've almost got the hand of God upon you. If you'll let us help you, if you'll let us help you, you can have it all. Now, what I want to share with you, so then we go in, well, how are you going to help me to get it all? We can teach you how to pray through. You know, we can teach you how to struggle. We can also give you some helps along the way to teach you how to do what we do. Now, I want to share with you, when I was younger in the ministry, that could be really intimidating because we're all afraid. I, I'm, I've got an inferiority complex. I've I spent my whole life in athletics competing with six-foot-four guys and that gives you an inferiority complex. And all of us have that to some extent. It's very hard for any of us just to really rest on who we are and what we've done. And so we all have those things. And it comes over into our spiritual life. You know what I'm talking about? It comes over in our spiritual life. So these individuals say, David, you're almost there, but you're not quite there. You know what Paul says? He says, David, and he says to this group of people and anyone that might think like this, first of all, charismata are Exactly that. You know what charismata means? It means gracious gifts, gracious abilities, gracious spiritual abilities that God has given to every one of his children to build up the body of Christ. You know what? God never does that exactly the same. God doesn't create a whole group of believers who are the same. I know one of my gifts in God's family is the gift of teaching. I found that out because I did everything in the body of Christ. I, I was involved in all kinds of ministries. But it just worked out over the years that when I taught groups, they would come to me and I could see growth in their life and the Holy Spirit would really use them. And that's how you find out what some of your abilities are. You get involved in the body of Christ. You start praising the Lord Jesus. You start building up others. 
And then you find out some of these gracious gifts, spiritual abilities, sometimes parallel to your natural talents, sometimes not, that God has just freely given you. Now, I want to share something with you. It's a gift. You see, I never had the right to say, well, I'm a teacher in the family of God because I didn't earn it. I didn't be recommended for the job, and I went through all kinds of interviews, and the Holy Spirit said, yeah, I think, David, you're at a point in your life where I'll give you the gift of teaching. I'll pat you on the head. That's nice. He didn't do that at all. It just happened. When I was born again in the eternal plan of God, the Lord meant for me to be able to teach God's people from the Holy Scripture. You know what? Every single one of you have an ability. You might not even know what it is. You need to get involved because that's the only way you'll find out what it is. But don't let anybody ever cause you to think that you have to earn those abilities. It's always a gift. Now, you need to strive to build up others, as we're going to learn in this text. And there is a striving to get close to the Lord, to be more devoted to Him, to enjoy this personal relationship with Him. But you never move away from the idea that it's a gracious gift and you never earn it. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see that I've already emphasized is that there's a diversity of charismata. There's never sameness. There's a diversity. All of you that are born again have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You have been made to drink. The Holy Spirit has come into your life. But he will give a diversity of gifts, not just one gift. So you can always be cautious. Whenever somebody comes to me and says, you need to have what I have, I can be very confident that that's not what the Scripture is really teaching. Because Paul told the Corinthians, it's not getting what someone else has because the Holy Spirit's so creative that he gives a diversity of gifts. Very important to realize that. Every single one of you are different from anybody else. And it takes all of us together. You see, what we're always trying to do and what we'll work on further, we all want to be hands. So we get all the hands together. We all want to be feet, so we get all the feet together. Then all the mouths get together. And then we can't figure out why we have such a monstrosity. In order to have a body, you need to have different parts. Diversity of abilities, diversity of talents. And that's what the Holy Spirit always does. So you say, well, Dave, if we're all different, if we all have different abilities in the Spirit, we all have different approaches to worship, we all have different ideas about what kind of churches we should build, and on and on and on, how do we all get along? There's only one spirit. So your unity is always rooted not in sameness of gift, but in the sameness of our Lord. The second way that we get unity is realizing that there are many different kinds of services, but the same Lord Jesus, the same Son of God. Very important to look at that. Look at what it says in Romans 12. It says there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. You know what we're to use our spiritual abilities for? Not just to build ourselves up. That's what so many believers are doing. You know what? So many believers are on a pious journey into internalization. In fact, I would say that we live in the age of self-fulfillment. In other words, the meaning of human life is to take a journey inside yourself and find the meaning of life. Now I want to share with you, the Bible wants you to value yourself because you're made in the image of God. The Bible wants you to recognize that you're loved 
because God in his grace has chosen you. But you can journey, you can sail around inside your personality from now until kingdom come and you'll be neurotic and you'll be sick and you'll never live a life of meaning. You know why? Because you are built to live to meet other people's needs. Now, not in a neurotic sense of I'm a jerk, I can't do anything else, I'm everyone else's dish rag, so I will do all the dirty work. That's neurotic. But someone that realizes I'm gifted by the Holy Spirit, I'm talented in Him, therefore, like the Son of God, I can take off my outer garment, gird my loins with a towel, and I can wash other people's feet. Not because I feel inferior, but because I feel accepted in my Father's love. And I am built to serve. I want to say this. The evangelical Christian church in America has forgotten that our Savior came into the world to serve rather than to be served. You see, we have the idea that everyone's supposed to serve us. And everyone's supposed to meet our needs. It, it comes over in the whole way that we worship. We gather together. And our idea is, I feel low today. Will I be made to feel better? I feel discouraged today. Will somebody meet my need? We come into a church family and we say, are these people friendly? Or are they not? We're all like that. As Americans, we approach things always. It's like watching TV. The way you evaluate a TV show, did it make me feel better? Did it help me to escape? Did it help me to get out of the struggles of life? And the same thing comes over in the church. And as long as you do that, you'll never have the joy of a body. Because you know what the real kick is? The kick is to gather together with believers and say, how can I meet their needs? But you know what should happen in this body of believers? There should be a tripping over one another to pick up dirty forks and spoons and knives. I'll just get right down to the nitty-gritty. You all should be fighting over who's going to take out the garbage to meet one another's needs. And Menelavich, it should be such a, a desire to do these works of service that hardly anybody ever gets to do it that much. Because it, everyone's saying, no, no, you need to let me do it this time. I want to do it this time. That's not what you do, is it? Is it? Sometimes no, sometimes yes. You see, the American church thinks it's a very negative thing. I just get down to the nitty-gritty about service. A lot of churches would think it's very negative that we don't just have a beautiful auditorium where we can hire. If we were in North Dallas, we could just hire a marvelous janitor that would do all the work for us. You know, I think that would be really pretty sick for you all and sick for me. You know why? The Lord uses, the Lord uses pushing a vacuum cleaner to do great things in my life. Somebody comes in here. You know, from the East Coast, they see me go to Word of Life, and they see me speak in front of 1,100 people. They hear me over the radio. They come bopping in our church and say, where is Dr. Wurtson? And here I am pushing a vacuum cleaner. And I go, oh, he's probably in his office over there. No, I don't say that. I say, I'm him. <laughs> they go to him, you mean to tell me that you run vacuum cleaners? You went to Dallas Seminary for nine years to run vacuum cleaners? Yeah. Yeah. Not always, because we all need to be the body. 
And my problem is I try to be the whole body. That's what wears me out. I have an idea. I can be the whole body of Christ. The Lord really convicted me about that. It's wrong if I feel I can be the whole body because I can't. I can't visit everybody that's sick. I can't counsel everybody that needs to be counseled. I can't teach everybody that needs to be taught. I can't be the whole body. It burns you out quick. But I can be a servant, and so can you. You know, there's nothing neater than the freedom to be an accepted servant. To know that you're a king. To know that you're the son of God. To know that you become a child of God by grace. So on this planet, you're free completely from all this rigmarole of trying to be somebody and having to have titles and having to have people serve you. You know what the neat thing happens? When you vacuum together, you really are friends together. When you eat together and everybody pitches in, then you have intimacy. The Lord's doing a whole lot of that in our group. The Lord's raising up a whole lot of gifts. And oh, how we need to pray that it'll do so much more. The unity of the body of Christ is that we're here to serve one another. But there's only one Lord Jesus. And finally, he says, there's a whole lot of energy. All different kinds of energizings. All kind of different things that move us and get us excited and power that comes into our life. But you know what it says? It says that God the Father is the one that works through it all. So he says that the unity that we have in the body of Christ is the unity of the Trinity. We sang, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And we praise the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. And he said that there's many different ways that the energy of God will move in our life. We're going to be talking more about this. You know, some of you, you come into a church like this, and the ceiling tiles come crashing down. Some of you could walk right through the ceiling tile and never notice it. You don't have the gift of administration. It's not your thing. In fact, you might have been thinking about, if you have the gift of an evangelist, you might have been thinking of an unbeliever that needs to be reached, and you didn't even see the ceiling tile. But there's some other ones of you that come in here, and you see a tile that's down the floor. It just irks you to death. Why doesn't someone do it? Why don't we get organized around here? Why do those men, those leaders, never get things going right? You know what you have? You have the gift of administration. You're the practical person in the group, the Marthas, the Phillips, the Stevens, that know how to plan, that know how to organize. And the thing to do with that gift is, don't knock the person that doesn't have that gift. Get in there in the body and use the gift. Don't do it all yourself. But use your gift to get others organized to work together. Wally was trained as an unbeliever to do it all himself. Boy, am I thankful he got saved. He's taught me to do a whole lot of things all by myself. I mean, he taught me how to do a lot of some electrical stuff and how to build and all kinds of things. But you know what I really appreciate? He's really learned that he's a dependent person, not an independent person. Sure, he can build a house. Sure, he knows how to do everything from plumbing to wiring to constructing. And he can do it all, fix the cars and everything. But when he became a believer, he could no longer be an independent person. 
He had to be a dependent person. You see, we can't be in our houses. We can't live our life and say, I can handle it all, because none of us can. I can't handle it all. You can't handle it all. And so the Lord says we all get our eyes on the Trinity. We're all going to be given different gifts. And just like the beautiful human body, we're going to all get together. And by a miracle of God's grace, all these different parts of the spiritual body of Christ will work together. And I don't think the world has yet seen what a body of believers can do that get their eyes completely focused on the Trinity and utilize all their gifts that have been graciously given them in the body of Christ. I hope you're starting to get over your fear of the word spiritual gifts. Charismatic. Don't be afraid. Diversity in the body. Unity in the triune God. A church family should never divide over spiritual gifts. Not in a million years. Even if they have different viewpoints about it, they should never divide over it. You say, why not? Because it's not the focus. It's not where all the emphasis lies. If there's ever division over it, we've all lost it, what Paul was really talking about. So relax, would you? It's okay. You don't have to be defensive. Get your eyes on the triune God. Father, Paul has reminded us that we are not an independent people, but we are a dependent people. We fit together more intricately than even the human body. We pray that all of us would fit together and use our strength, use the gifts to accomplish your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.